Luke chapter number 7. I'd like to begin reading at verse number 36. The Bible says, And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I pray tonight that you give me the help and the strength that I need, that you would give me the words to speak. Lord, my heart's desire is that your mind and will would be related and conveyed to your people tonight through me. So, Father, I ask that as your word is preached, that you would stir hearts and that you would accomplish in them that which the human arm and the human energy is unable to accomplish. And that's a true spiritual change that can only come from your inner working. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you for all that you've done. Oh, Lord, we could never thank you for all that you've done. But help us to be more thankful Lord, and teach us to love you more. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. As we've read this passage tonight, it's very interesting that this parable stands in such proportion against the context with which it's given. This is unusual in the parables of Christ. In fact, it seems as though most of the parables that Christ taught, the parable always seems to be the centerpiece of the passage that you're reading. And yet you find as you read of this woman, the Bible says she was a sinner. And that word sinner that's found there has very definite connotations to it. We believe she was a harlot or a prostitute that comes to Jesus, that breaks the alabaster box, that pours the ointment upon his feet, that, that washes his feet with her tears, with her hair, that kisses his feet. 
we find that the story that provides the setting seems to occupy just as much emphasis as the parable itself. I think that's very unique, and I think it's very important. Because I can think of no parable in the Word of God in which the context and the parable itself seem to dovetail and be so parallel and and so uh, explicit in the truths that they're conveying. That's not to say that any of the other parables, that they're not inspired or that they're wrong. You know I don't mean that tonight, but what I mean is it's almost as though you can see a perfect picture of Simon and of this woman in these two debtors that are spoken of. That word debtor is a very interesting word. Paul said this, that he was a debtor both to the Greek and the barbarian. To be a debtor means that you owe something that you can't pay back. I would say tonight for you and I that we owe some things that we'll never be able to pay back. As I read this passage, I want to give you seven thoughts tonight. I know that sounds scary, but I'll be quick. Amen? Most of the time when I say I've got three thoughts, usually each one has about 55 subpoints. So just seven this evening, I promise you. I want us to notice first off the persons of this parable. And tonight I am going to put a little bit of focus on the parable itself, although we'll talk about this woman and we'll talk about Simon. We'll talk about the episode that took place in this Pharisee's house. But as we read this passage, three different personages are spoken of in this parable of the creditor and the debtors. We're told first off of a man that's known only to us as the creditor. It's very interesting that nothing else is told to us about him but only in his capacity to be able to loan, to give, to bless, and to prosper. Can I say to you tonight that when you and I were lost and undone, there was a lot of things that we didn't know about Jesus Christ. But one of the things we did know about him was that he had just what we needed. We understood, before we understood much of anything else about him, that we had a deficit, we had a need, we had a want. And he could supply it. He could provide for it. He was sufficient. You see, as we read this passage, I think it's abundantly clear that Jesus Christ, he's the creditor. Now, some would say, oh, no, the creditor, he's God. No, I don't find that in Scripture because I find God uh, as in the Godhead or God the Father as being the offended party. I find Jesus Christ as being the one, and I'm not implying that Jesus isn't God, but as the person of the Trinity, the second person, the Son of God, he went and he paid the price, he purchased our debt, and now it's him to who we are indebted to. And we don't go to God the Father and ask forgiveness. We go to Jesus Christ. Christ and ask forgiveness because He's the one that's bought and paid for our debt. He's the one that's settled it square with God. The Bible says that He's the Savior of all men. The Bible says that He's tasted death for every man. Does that mean that all men are saved? No, that's not what that means. What that means is that when He paid the debt, He paid the debt for every man. And now it's a question of whether we accept or reject Him. See, the lost man's debt has already been paid with God. But now he answers to Jesus Christ. 
And if he chooses to reject Jesus Christ, then he chooses to reject that payment which has been made. He'll suffer uh, damnation for all of eternity, but God's holiness has already been vindicated. God's righteousness, God's authority, God's power has already been satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. Whether the sinner accepts Christ or not, God the Father has already been satisfied. When he saw the travail of his soul, Isaiah 53 said, he was satisfied. Now it's a question of whether you'll accept or reject Jesus Christ. He's the creditor. He's the one that has the power and the authority. He owes you, owns your debt. He's the one that we're indebted to. He's the creditor. But as I read this passage, I see these debtors, and I find that both of them are in a lot of ways in the same boat. In fact, both of them are somewhat in the same circumstances. Both of them find themselves in the, in the same calamity, and both of them are able to partake in the same kindness of this creditor. These debtors, they're pictures of you and I. They're pictures of lost sinners. Uh, very much so, that is how by the Word of God pictures you and I. Uh, not, that, uh, not a question of whether we have defrauded God. We, by our own depravity, we've defrauded God. Not a question of whether we're in debt to Him. Every man, woman, and child born in this world is born in debt to God. He's given them life. He's given them breath. He's given them consciousness. He's given them strength. He's given them time. And every single one of them, when they're born, they're born as sinners taking advantage of the blessings that God has bestowed upon them. It doesn't matter who you are. You're a debtor to God. It's just a question of what happens to that debt. I see the persons of this parable. But I want you to notice the proportions of their debts that are spoken of. The Bible says that of this one man that he had borrowed 500 pence. Now, when we read that, that doesn't sound very impressive. We think of 500 pennies. And in fact, a penny is what's being spoken of in this passage. But if you were to read in Matthew chapter 20, another parable that Christ gave of laborers and workers that would go into the field, each of those laborers, the wages that it was settled upon that they would have would be one penny a day. And so in some ways, when we read uh, that this man had borrowed 500 pence, it's almost as though it's saying that he borrowed 500 days wages. All of a sudden, that debt seems a lot larger, doesn't it? The Bible says of another debtor that he had borrowed 50 days' wages. The Bible teaches us, we're, we're going to get to a lot of it here in a moment, but these uh, that Christ is picturing with this debt, our sin debt. You and I, as lost sinners, because of our unrighteousness and our sin, the holiness of God had to be vindicated. Uh, some of us, it's very interesting uh, that these pennies represent a day's worth of wages because it's almost like God wants it not only in a monetary framework, but also in a chronological framework. You see, sometimes, and I agree that there are uh, sins that are different degrees of sins. We've mentioned that several times. I don't know who out there needs it, but the Lord's had me mention that four or five times in the past week or so. Uh, but there are different degrees of sin. But it's interesting that as Christ is speaking of Simon as the debtor that has borrowed uh, 50 penny worth and is speaking of this prostitute as the woman that has borrowed 500 penny worth, that you could also reflect that into the chronology of time that we've spent living in sin. You know, there's some folks that got saved at a young age like I did. There's some folks that got saved way later on in life. There's some of us that we've borrowed 50 penny worth. There's others that have borrowed 500 penny worth. There is a proportion to these things. 
Now, can I say that the blood of Calvary washes clean whether you've borrowed 50 or 500 or 5,000 or 5 million? But there is a difference. There is an accountability. And we're going to find that this proportional principle uh, is something that compounds with the product and the result of the pardon that's going to be offered here in a little while. So don't get discouraged, but it is important to note that there is a proportional difference between these different debtors. They had borrowed different amounts. There's some folks that have lived a life that is very moral, and they're lost and undone without Christ, and when they die, they're going to die and go to hell if they don't accept Christ. There's others that have lived a life of great immorality, and when they die, if they die without Christ, they're going to die and go to hell. The Bible says that they'll be judged according to their work. So, yes, I believe it does matter. And there is a proportion that's spoken of concerning these debts. But I want you to notice the next thing that's spoken of. We see in this passage the persons of this parable. Uh, It says down in verse number 41, there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. We see the proportion of their debts. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. But notice verse number 42. Look at the poverty of the debtors. The Bible says, and when they had nothing to pay. Here we find the great equalizer. Here we find the great common ground upon which every one of us meets the cross of Calvary. You see, it didn't matter whether you owed 50 or owed 500 when you didn't have a single penny to pay for your name. The truth of the matter is, you and I, as lost sinners, we may have lived a life of great immorality. We may have lived a life of great morality. But if we've rejected Jesus Christ, we'll die and go to the same devil's hell. Uh, Every one of us are completely without the capacity to pay even a, a cent of the sin debt that we owe. We can't do it through charity. We can't do it through good work. We can't do it through promising never to sin again. Even if from this moment till the uh, day that I die, even if I could uh, live a life completely spotless of iniquity and unrighteousness and sin, which is completely impossible, but even if I could do that, it still would not change all of the sins that I've committed in my life. You see, at the end of the day, for both of these debtors, it might as well have been five million pence because they didn't have anything to pay. It doesn't say that the one man had 48 pence. It doesn't say that the other man had 480 pence. It says either one of them, they had nothing to pay. We live in a life that, or we live in a world today that very much thinks of morality as a bargaining table at which we meet with God. You know, the Bible never says that we come to bargain with God. The Bible does say we come to reason with God, but we never come to bargain with Him. You say, what's the difference? Uh, When you're bargaining, you're coming and saying, here's what I have to offer. Let me see what I can give you. But you know that you can reason with someone based upon a fact, based upon a truth, something that you're not investing or uh, divesting in any way, shape, fashion, or form. And that's kind of how it is when we come to Jesus Christ. We don't come and say, Lord, I promise if you'll save me, I'll, I'll be a really good person. Lord, I I, I promise I'll join the church. I'll get baptized. I'll give a bunch of money if you'll just forgive me. No, that's not how it works. We don't come and say, here's what I have to give you if you can give me something. We come and we say, in my hand, no price I bring, simply that I cross. I cling, but it's based upon that cross. Lord, that's why I'm here. That's the reason that I'm here. That's the reason that I have a footing and a standing here in your presence is to say, based upon the blood of Jesus Christ, I have a reason to be here. And based upon His blood, I can be forgiven. We can reason together, but we don't ever bargain with God. We don't have anything to offer Him. 
We don't have anything to appease his uh, holy uh, anger. We don't have anything to appease his unvindicated righteousness. Only through the blood of Jesus Christ could his righteousness be justified and vindicated. No, we don't come to bargain. We come to reason with him. And just like these debtors, we don't have anything to pay. It doesn't matter if a man has great social standing. That doesn't square him with God. I tell you, it's going to be a shock to a lot of folks one of these days. When they die and realize that what they thought was going to get them in ain't going to get them in. It's going to be a real shock one of these days when, 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 uh, when the Freemason rings don't do much at the gates of heaven. It, it, it's, I, I don't, <laughs> I could just stay right there, but I'm, I'm going to move on. It's going to be shocking when, when folks get to heaven and find out that the Moose Lodge ain't going to get them in. It's going to be shocking when folks get to heaven and find out that all the business associates that they've got, that's not going to get them in. It's going to be shocking when people get to heaven one of these days, find out that all that record of charity that they've done is not going to get them in. They have nothing to pay. We see their poverty. But I want you to notice what's the prerogative of the creditor. Now, this isn't said in the text, but you don't have to do much digging to see what his prerogative was. Now, here he is. One man owes him 500, another owes him 50. Neither one of them can pay a penny. What is his recourse as the creditor? We find other passages in the Bible where parables are given concerning folks that couldn't pay debts. And you can study through history and you'll find out this is the case, that he had the choice to jail them and in some cases even to have them killed over the debt that they owed. That was his right to do that. You find this truth uh, in the story of Onesimus in the book of Philemon. When Onesimus had fled and ran away and stolen from his master, and he had met Paul uh, in a Roman jail, and Paul had led him to the Lord. Now Paul is writing a letter back to Philemon, and uh, he's saying, I'm writing for my own son Onesimus. He said, if he hath wronged thee uh, in any way, he said, put it on my account. Onesimus wasn't going to go back. Do you know why? Because he knew that it could mean his death if he went back. Onesimus understood that Philemon had the right to take him out to the public court and have him stoned to death because of what he had done, because he had stolen and robbed from him and ran from him. And in the same way, do you know that that was God's prerogative for you and me? God had the right not only to put us in bondage, but to destroy us because we were sinners. That was his right. That was his prerogative. That was his choice. That's what he could have done. And he would have still been God. (laughs) It would not have made him any less loving if he had destroyed every one of us. He'd still be God. Wouldn't have changed who he is as God. We were preaching on it, uh, well, when was it? Monday night in the Bible study. We're talking about grace and our relationships with one another. Grace motivates us not to operate to the extent of what our right is, but rather to the effectual nature of what will restore someone. That's what meekness speaks of. Meekness is uh, power kept in check by grace and by the Spirit of God. In the same way, we gave this example, and I'll give it to you tonight. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, whenever the band of soldiers led by Judas came, and uh, Christ said, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And all of a sudden, the power of God threw him back uh, onto their uh, backs. He was exhibiting his power, and yet the Bible says that he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He could have. He had the power. He had the authority. He He had the right to destroy every single one of them. But because it was effectual for you and I that we be redeemed, uh, that we be reconciled, that we be restored into the presence of God, yet he chose to go as a lamb to the slaughter. That's meekness. That's meekness. And here's this creditor. He has the right 
to throw these men in jail. Nobody would have called him cruel. He has the right to ask for their heads. No one would have called him unjust. But we see not only the prerogative of the creditor, but we see the pardon of the creditor. Notice what the Bible says. He frankly forgave them both. Them both. Boy, isn't it amazing? That's a picture of grace right there. Grace forgives where righteousness has the authority to destroy. Grace restores where holiness claims the right to destroy. And here this creditor had the right to do this, but out of his own love he chose to pardon and to forgive. Do you know that's what God did for you and for me? God had the right to smite us, to snuff us out, to destroy us. God had the right to do anything that he chose to do. And yet, miracle of all miracles, wonder of all wonders, God chose to forgive. In fact, God didn't just choose to forgive. God went so far as to send his own son to die so that he might be able to forgive. We see the pardon. What a beautiful word, pardon. You know, that's that very word where it says, frankly, forgive. Uh, that we find that word all the way through the New Testament as it reflects the idea of redemption and forgiveness. And that's the word that God chose to use, that He forgave, that He pardoned, that He let us go free. You picture almost uh, the inmate that's on death row waiting for that moment. At any time he could be called up to give an account for the wickedness that he has partook in, for the sins that he has committed. There's no rhyme. There's no reason. You would think that he is going to die for his sins and all of a sudden the phone call comes and the the governor out of his benevolence, out of his goodwill, has bestowed a pardon upon him. Not because of anything he's done, not because he's worthy, but because of the benevolence of the governor. And in the same way, God, out of the great depth of his righteousness... Notice this. What's the premise of this pardon? The Bible says he frankly forgave. Frankly forgave. Now, we think about that word frankly, and we kind of think of the idea of boldness, don't we? We think of the idea of boldness. Some, Some folks might say, well, let me be frank with you. Even folks ain't named Frank say that to you sometimes. You know, that's like folks that say, surely not. You know, who are you calling Shirley? Amen. No, but that word, frankly, does not necessarily uh, entail the idea of boldness all the time. In fact, in this passage, it entails the idea of freely. Freely. Or can I give you another word that's associated with it? Graciously. Graciously. To frankly forgive them means that he forgave them with no strings attached. It means that he forgave them without any expectations. And can I say to you that Throughout your whole life, you could never lift a finger for God and He'd never take your salvation away. He didn't save you because He knew what you was going to do. Because the truth is, even knowing what we're going to do, God shouldn't have saved us. He didn't save you because He wanted you on His team, so to speak. He didn't save you because He's trying to put together an A squad. He saved you out of His abundant grace, love, and mercy. You weren't much when God saved you. And if you're like me, you're not much now. But that's the idea of that word, frankly. Without any strings attached. We don't know how to operate that way. You know that? We don't know how to operate that way. We can tell folks that there's no strings attached to something. You can sit there and let someone borrow your car and tell them, say, Oh, just take it, keep as long as you need and bring it back to to me. Just keep it, don't worry about it, but let them bring it back with an empty gas tank. We'll find out how many strings were attached. Amen. We may not say anything to them, but we'll do our share of griping. We don't know how to function that way. But God loves unconditionally. 
truly unconditionally. We talk about loving our children unconditionally sometimes. But the truth is, we can't love our children unconditionally. You know why? Because there's already conditions there. They're our child. That's why we love them. If they were our enemy, we wouldn't love them that way. But God loved us in such a way that He gave His only begotten Son for you and I. When we were enemies, when we were unrighteous, when we were alienated from the righteousness and the family of God, when we literally were God-haters and infidels, when we were the enemy of God, He loved us when there was no reason, no benefit to Him, when we had expressed no, uh, not even a single ounce of love, He loved us unconditionally. He forgave us frankly. And so all of a sudden this debt is wiped clean. We see this pardon that is given. We see the premise of this particular pardon. I want you to notice this next thing that we see. What is the product of the pardon? Now, this gets to the real, the real heart of what we're preaching on tonight. What's the product of it? You see, that's the lesson that Christ is trying to teach to Simon. And that's the lesson that Christ is trying to teach to whoever else was in this location. They couldn't understand what this woman was doing. They couldn't fathom why she would have the boldness as a sinner to come in. One one of the greatest uh, statements in the entire Word of God is the statement that Simon makes. You'll find times, uh, I've I've read uh, sermons on, I've preached on this thought uh, of the incidental gospel of the enemies of Jesus Christ. Times when Christ's enemies uttered some of the greatest truths about him. Let me give you one, for instance, this man receiveth sinful men. Oh, they meant, it, they meant it as a reproach, but aren't you thankful that this man receiveth sinful men? And this is another one of them uh, where Simon says, if this man were a prophet, he would know what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Simon didn't realize it, but he was a prophet. He was much more than a prophet. And Christ was fully aware of who this woman was, what she had done, where she had been. And Christ still allowed it. Why did He allow it? Because we find that her actions were the outpouring of a love that was birthed from the pardon that had been given to her as a debtor. What is the product of this pardon? What does it do in our hearts and lives? Let me tell you something. The fact that you've been forgiven ought to be the greatest motivation to love that you ever have. Let me tell you something. A lot of this coldness that we have, and a lot of us, we're guilty of it now. I mean, we're, listen, we're a friendly church and we love one another. But we all, there's times anywhere where iniquity aboundeth, love will wax cold. I know that's talking uh, about the tribulation period, uh, but that's true no matter what period of time. Anywhere where iniquity abounds, love will wax cold. And Simon looks at this woman and uh, says, I can't believe she'd do such a thing. How dare she? But the problem was this. Simon couldn't understand. He had forgot about the 50 pence that he had been forgiven of. You see, it's really a matter of perception. Uh, this woman, though she had been forgiven of much more than Simon had, Simon, and, and I'm not even purely convinced that Simon knew the Lord or had been forgiven, uh, because uh, he didn't do any of those things. Christ said the reason she did these things is because she's been forgiven. Uh, she washed my feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. She kissed uh, my feet. She anointed my feet with oil. Uh, and uh, she did that because she loves me. But Simon, you didn't do any of those things. And that uh, seems to me to be Christ saying, you don't love me at all. And the whole purpose here is that great forgiveness brings about great love. The truth is, a lot of times, the reason, and by the way, you know, Calvary produces forgiveness. You know that, don't you? 
That's where you go for forgiveness is Calvary. And forgiveness produces love. That's what the lesson is here. And do you know that love produces obedience? If you love me, keep my commandments. You know why we're disobedient? Because it's been so long since we've been to Calvary. It's been so long since we've sat at the foot of that cross once again. Not to be resaved. No, no, no. Not to be resaved, but to remember how big a debt we owed. You see, the problem with Simon is he looked at it and he said, Well, hey, I only owe 50%. Uh, listen to me. I only owe 50 pence. She owes 500 pence. And Christ says, Yes, but as your creditor, you are bankrupt. You are broke. You have nothing. And you owed me just as large or just as insurmountable a debt as she did owing me 500. Uh, let me just, can I put it as plain as I know how? We may think we're awful good, but we still deserve to die and go to hell. And it ought to be enough just to know that God loved us, that He forgave us, that we're redeemed, that ought to be enough to make us love Him like He deserves to be loved. We see these things, and I could go through them, I'm probably not going to, but can I just point out one, just one? Of these three actions that Christ speaks of, there's one that gains my interest greatly. The Bible says that she took and wiped His feet with her hair. I've thought good and long about that. What does that mean? And then the Lord reminded me of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Bible tells me that a woman's hair is her glory. Oh, we could talk about kissing His feet, and there's a place for that, staying at that place of worship. But I just want to say a word about living your life in a way that glorifies Him. You know that you won't do it just because it's a duty and a burden if you'll get close to Calvary. You'll want to live for His glory and for His honor. You see, if you'll just remind yourself of who and what you were and what God forgave you from, of and what God saved you from, that'll help you love Him more. I pray often for the Lord to teach us and to teach me to love Him more because I feel as though we're so inadequate in the way that we love Him. The Bible says that we're to love Him in deed and in truth. Isn't that what it says? Isn't that what this woman did? Simon had invited the Lord into his home. And yet, in coming into his home, he didn't even afford the Lord the same basic courtesies that he would afford anyone else. You see, all these things that Christ points out that Simon did not do, all these things were very common to do for any guest that came in your home. It was common uh, to uh, take a basin of water, to gird yourself with a towel, and to wash the feet of your guests. That was a common thing to do. Uh, they had been out traveling, and it was a dusty road. And always when they entered a house, uh, though they may not have to be cleaned every whit, as Christ spoke of in John chapter 13, though maybe the whole body didn't have to be washed, surely just their feet would have to be washed. And it was common in that country and in that time. Surely if anybody else would have come into his house, uh, Simon would have been more than happy to gird himself with a towel and to wash his feet. But here, this one that Simon calls master, he's not willing to do that for. And you know that oftentimes we'll go to greater lengths uh, for the secular world than we will for our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's lots of times we'll do more for our job than we do for Him. There's lots of times we do more for our kids than we do for Him. Lots of times we'll, we'll pay more to the government or, or to the waiter or to the waitress. Now, wait a minute now. Some of y'all are saying, or preacher, are you saying we ought not tip well? I, I, I griped at him on Monday night about tipping. That You need to tip well, but you need to tithe better. Amen? A lot of times, the very things will go to greater lengths for our secular ties, for our worldly friends, for our worldly associations, than we will for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He speaks of anointing. 
his head with oil. He says uh, it, it was common at that time when you'd come into a Middle Eastern home, you'd been out on the road and, uh, and in the wind and your hair would be all over the place. It was very common uh, for you to give your guests a dab of olive oil for them to run through their hair to try to get themselves to be somewhat presentable. And the Lord says, Simon, you would have done that for anyone, but you didn't do it for me. Oh, man, I don't even know how to preach it. You had done that for anyone, but you didn't do it for me. Man, I wonder how many of us throughout the day we pick up a phone and call someone and talk to them. We'll do that for them, but we won't bow the knee and talk to him. I wonder how many of us, if, how many of us, if someone came to us and said, Hey, I'm struggling. I, I, I need a little financial help. We'd whip that wallet out and help them. But if the Lord presses on our hearts and says, I want you to give just a little over and above, we wouldn't do it for Him. I wonder how many of us, if someone came to us and said, Hey, I need a job. And where you work, I'm looking for a job. Would you be willing to vouch for me? Would you be willing to put in a good word for me? Or would you be willing to mention my name? We'd say, Yeah, buddy, I'll do what I can. But how many of us won't go to a lost and dying world in need of our Savior and mention His name to them. You see, the ultimate expression of, of, of love is that we be obedient to Him. And the source of that love is that place of forgiveness. I think it'd do us all good to spend some time back at the foot of that cross. I think it'd do us all good to spend some time thinking about what it was like when we got up. Some of us think all we owed him was 50 pence. But I promise you this, when you couldn't pay it, and when you was on your knees as a sinner before God, 50 pence seemed like a lot, didn't it? But now we've met the, we've met the fellow down the road, and he paid five. He was forgiven 500 pence, so we don't think our 50 pence is so much. Sometimes we get to the place we hear about these folks that God saved them out of the, uh, the depth of the murk and the, and the pit and the sorrow, and we think, well, I know why they rejoice. But me, I was a pretty good person. But you would have gone to the same hell they would have gone to. You would have went to the same hell they would have went to. You may have been saved as a child in a vacation Bible school or in a revival. You may have been saved as a child in a, in a Bible study or in your family altar or devotion time. You may have been saved before you ever got out in the depths of wickedness, but you would have went to the same hell. You ought to love Him just as anyone else would. I wonder how much we love Him tonight. I wonder how much you love Him tonight, how much I love Him. Say, preacher, can we find out? Sure we can. We can look at our lives and ask ourselves this, how obedient am I to Him? If you're not very obedient to Him, it's because you don't love Him very much. I know that seems tough, but that's what Jesus Christ said. If you love me, keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. You say, well, it's just so hard sometimes. Well, you're going to have to give Him that excuse. You don't answer to me. You answer to Him. And I know this, that it was an awful hard road to go up to Calvary for your sins and for mine. But He bore it anyway out of love. I'm sure it was hard for God to offer up His Son, His only begotten Son, for you and I, I'm sure that's difficult. I'm sure that's hard. But you know why He did it? He did it because He loved you. Love don't make excuses. Love makes way. Love suffereth long. Isn't that what the Bible says? Charity. I know it says charity. Suffereth long and is kind. Vaunteth not itself. Is not puffed up. Exalteth not itself. You see, at the end of the day, you really love Him. You'll do what it takes to serve Him. You won't make excuses. If you want to make excuses, your church family is probably polite enough to let you. Just being honest now. If you want to make excuses, your church family is probably polite enough to let you. One of these days you're going to stand in front of him, and you know what he's going to say? He's going to look at you and say, you told me you loved me.
But why didn't you live it? You told me you loved me. But why didn't you live it? You say, all right, preacher, now we know how we can tell. How do we remedy it? How do we remedy it? We come back to that first place is how we remedy it. We go back in our minds, in our hearts, and confess ourselves afresh and anew to be as worthless as we truly are. I don't mean you get saved again. You don't need to be saved again if you've already been saved. But I mean we go back and visit Calvary again. We visit that place again. We find ourselves just as rotten, just as worthless. And you know what we'll find? We'll find the Savior just as gracious, just as merciful, just as loving, just as forgiving. And there at that place, conscious, because that's really what it is. It's a matter of perception and consciousness. The problem was Simon wasn't as perceptive of his sin as this woman was. And sometimes we're not as perceptive of how rotten and sinful we really are. You get your consciousness back on who and what you are, and you'll find that that love will wax bold and will grow in our hearts. I wonder how many of us, like the church at Ephesus, have left that first love that first experience of Calvary, that first place where He meant so much to us because we knew how much we meant to Him. And that's where we find it, is at Calvary. That's where He showed us how much that we mean to Him. And that's where He grows to mean something to us. I wonder tonight if that's you, if you would be willing to go back to that place, to find yourself at Calvary once again, to reconnect with that point at the foot of the cross, and to say, Lord, I just want to thank You all over again for what You've done.